Hey, great to see you today. Uh, so glad that you're here at New Life with us. And uh, if you're a guest, welcome to you. My name is Steve. And uh, we love the Word of God here. We love teaching and preaching the Bible. And that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, I hope you're up for it today. I really do. It's, uh, we've got some great stuff for you. So I want to start with this scripture. It says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that's the people who are troubling you, nor, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And listen, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, those words were penned by the Apostle Peter later on in his life, but I can't help but think that he had a particular person in mind when he wrote those words, a man who he had known quite well earlier in his life, a brother in Christ, a friend who had embodied these very things, courage in the face of opposition, readiness to give a defense of the gospel, and uh, even a willingness to suffer for Jesus. That man had been a bright light in the early church, but his flame got snuffed out by a religious establishment that just could not handle him. His name? Stephen. Stephen, that's with a P-H, Stephen. And Stephen was a great man. He was as close to being like Jesus as anybody that we find in the Bible. Stephen became the very first Christian to be martyred for his faith and really, it was Stephen's death that would lead to the gospel being spread to the entire world. In our study in the book of Acts, it's Stephen's brief but powerful story that we come to today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. So if you have a Bible or a device, you can go there. And uh, I hope you're ready for Stephen's story today. It's, it's quite a story. In one sense, it's a very tragic tale. But I think from a higher perspective, it reveals the sovereign activity of an unstoppable God who is intent on bringing the gospel message to many, many, many more people. And he used both the life and the death of this incredible brother to do so. And of course, I take particular interest in this story because I was named after this guy. My parents told me I was named after Stephen, and then as a youngster, as I learned what happened to him, I thought, really? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> hey, any other Stevens or Stephanies in the room this morning? Stevens or Stephanies? A couple of you? Okay, awesome. A lot to live up to, right? How many of you were named after some Bible character? Could I see your hands? Oh, many of you. How many of you named uh, a child of yours after a person in the Bible? Lots and lots of us. Lot to live up to, right? I guess I should be grateful that my parents didn't name me Jesus <laughs> or Jesus or something like that, but Stephen. Now, scholars have noted how Stephen's place in this unfolding story of the early church makes him a, a, a transitional figure. His life and ministry was like a bridge connecting two eras of the church's early history. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, at this point in the book of Acts, the ministry of Peter is starting to come to an end, and the ministry of the apostle Paul is about to begin, and the link between those two is Stephen. Peter, as you know, was commissioned as an apostle to the Jews, 
Paul would become the same for the Gentiles, and between them stands Stephen, who did minister to Jews, but he ministered to Jews who lived in Gentile places. So he was the bridge. Peter's ministry had been in that city of Jerusalem, was pretty much confined there. Paul's would go to the world, but again, it was the life and death of Stephen that would catalyze the movement from Jerusalem to the world. And so Stephen stands as this link, this bridge between two important eras, between Peter and Paul, between Jew and Gentile, between Jerusalem and the known world. It's also been pointed out that Paul probably, you know, he really owed a lot to this man Stephen. In one sense, you could say that Stephen's mantle would end up falling on the shoulders of Paul. The two were contemporaries, and it's likely that Paul, actually before he was Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, it's likely that he would have heard Stephen speak at different times as Stephen presented his case for the Christian faith. Of course, they were adversaries at that time. They were on opposite sides. It's even possible that they faced off in a debate or two together sparring with with each other in the synagogue on matters of faith and theology. I just believe that Saul of Tarsus had to have been impacted by the life and ministry and death of this man Stephen that we're looking at today. If you haven't pulled the study guide out of your worship folder, go ahead and do that so you can follow along. I've got a lot to give you today. Here's how the story of Stephen unfolds in this section of the book of Acts. First, we're going to see that His ministry provoked opposition, which led to his arrest. Then we're going to watch him as he stands trial before the the Sanhedrin there, the high council. And in so doing, he gives a masterful defense um, against the charges that have been leveled against him. Third, that council becomes enraged and they commence basically to lynch him. And he ends up being the first Christian martyr. And then following that, in the wake of that, intense persecution breaks out against the church of Jesus there in Jerusalem, and the Christians who were there scatter into all of the surrounding regions, and it says, in so doing, they continued to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And so in the sovereign plan of God, the trigger that would shoot the church out into the world is this man, Stephen. And so let's ask, who was he? What do we know about him? Well, we know a few things. First of all, we know that he was a Jewish man. He was a Greek-speaking Jew, one of the Hellenists, as they were called. Those were Jews who lived outside of Israel, but still followed the religion of Judaism, only as part of a different culture and and a, a different language. Evidently, he had made the trek to Jerusalem at some point, maybe for that Pentecost feast. Somewhere along the line, he'd become a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe he was one of those first 3,000 who were saved and converted to Christ on the day of Pentecost. Maybe he was one of the 5,000 men who it says were converted a little later on. Or maybe he was one of the multitudes, after they stopped counting, who came to know the Lord. And so Stephen was a first-generation Christian, a first-chair Christian, as we'll see. And he had become a member of that very first Christian church what I like to call New Life of Jerusalem. (laughs) He was not an apostle himself, but he was a friend of the apostles. 
Interestingly, God entrusted Stephen with the power of an apostle. Something said of only a few people. And so he was a man of God. He was a great servant of the church, as we saw last weekend. He was a preacher. He was a performer of miracles. He was an evangelist. And he was a brilliant apologist, which is someone who defends the faith. And ultimately, as I said, he would be Christianity's first martyr and as such, a catalyst for the church fulfilling the Great Commission. And I think, when I think about Stephen's story, it, to me it's a testament to the fact that you don't have to live a long life to have a big impact. His young life was cut short, and yet his life had a ripple effect that continues on down to this very day. You know, some people live a long time on this earth but don't have much impact at all. Others live only into their 20s or 30s and have a huge impact. And that tells me it's, it's not how long you live, it's how you live the years that God gives you on this earth. It's how you live. That's what makes the difference. And the, the story of Stephen illustrates that so well. Well, today I want us to, to, to see and to be inspired by six characteristics of this incredible brother. His character, his countenance, his courage, his amazing command of the scriptures, his stunning level of Christ-likeness, and then finally his continuing legacy that I believe lives on even to this day. Okay, that's where we're going today. So let's start by talking about his character. His character, Acts 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And one of the first things I notice about this man are all the phrases that Luke uses to describe him. It says he is here, that he's full of the spirit and wisdom, he's full of grace and power. Verse 5, he's full of faith. Verses 3 and 10, full of wisdom. Verses 5, and then later on in chapter 7, full of the Holy Spirit. This was a godly, spirit-filled man. And we, when we talk about that phrase, spirit-filled, we've noted in the past that that term, filled, refers to being controlled, right? Or being dominated by something. And that's what Stephen was. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was emptied of himself and filled up completely with the Spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit was allowed to control his mind and his heart and his emotions and his decisions and his ambitions and his values and his priorities and his words. He was a Spirit-controlled, Spirit-dominated man. The reason it could be said he was filled with grace and with faith and with wisdom and with power is that he was filled with the Spirit. Those are characteristics of the Spirit of God and it's what the Spirit wants to impart to those who will yield to his control. And I wonder if you and I get up every morning and say, Holy Spirit, take control of my life today. I want to be emptied of me and I want to be filled with you. We learn that from Stephen. Full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, what are you full of? I thought about having you say, to your neighbor, say that to your neighbor, what are you full of? But I was a little bit fearful of what they might say to you in response, so I'll let you off the hook on that. But I ask you this, would the people who know you best describe you as being full of the Holy Spirit? Would they? 
Or would they say that you're full of yourself? Or full of worry? Or full of anger? Or full of fear? Or full of greed? Or full of selfish ambition? Or full of a love of money? Or or ease? Or entertainment? Or pleasure? What would the people who live with you, who work with you, what would they say that you are full of? That's a good question, isn't it? Truth is, every one of us is full of something, and whatever it is, I want you to know it's showing. It's leaking out. You can't hide it. People see it. This was certainly the case with Stephen. He was filled up to the brim with the Holy Spirit of the living God, and it showed up in how he lived, and people noticed. Last week, we saw how Stephen was one of the seven men Selected by the congregation there to oversee and administrate the growing benevolence ministry in that church that was tasked with making sure that all the needs of of all the different widows were being attended to. And so there's this list of seven people that was selected, and guess who's first on the list? It was Stephen. That alone tells us something about him, I think, and how he was viewed by the people in that congregation to be the first person chosen by a 20,000-member congregation for this important role says something about his reputation, doesn't it? His character, his wisdom, his compassion, his reliability, his faithfulness. This was a solid brother, the kind that any church would be blessed to have, that any wife would be blessed to be married to, The kind of man that any children would be blessed to have as their dad. The kind that any co-worker would be blessed to work alongside. Stephen. But even so, we discover that not everybody was happy with Stephen and what he was doing and what he was saying. So let me pick up the story in Acts 6 verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia... These foreign Jews who had their own synagogues, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. That's that High council, that's Sanhedrin it's called. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple there, and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So what is this? Well, this is opposition rising up, right? And to me, this is starting to sound like a broken record here in the book of Acts. We've already seen this happen before. We've seen it happen with Peter and John and then with all the apostles. There have already been trials and interrogations and false accusations. There have been beatings. There have been imprisonments. So opposition, resistance arises. And Stephen gets singled out because his message is just so logical. It's just so reasoned. It's so irrefutable. And they don't like it. His arguments are too strong to beat down, and that is irksome to these leaders who, who have allowed their hearts to become hardened towards, towards the Lord. And so, once again, there's resistance, and this time the intensity of the persecution is going to go to a whole new level. I'm telling you, the dam is about ready to break. But first, 
I want you to notice this very intriguing statement, verse 15 of Acts 6. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's talk about his countenance for a moment. His face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? Well, most commentators on the Bible believe that Stephen was manifesting the glory of God, the glow of the glory of God on his face, that shining countenance that comes from being much in the presence of God like the angels. And I love the fact that in this church we have people who manifest the glow of God on their face because they've been much with Jesus. And Stephen, as they looked at him, his face was glowing. And I ask you, does that remind you of anybody else in the Bible? Yeah. This is rich. Don't miss this. Only one other person in the Scriptures is said to have manifested the glory of God on their face, and it was Moses. You can read about it in Exodus 33 and 34. And there's irony here that's actually a rebuke. Remember, the authorities just charged Stephen with slander against Moses, their beloved Moses, whom they had elevated to near deity status. And as Stephen prepares to answer that charge, God causes his face to radiate with the glow of the glory of God, just like Moses had. Remember, as Moses came down the mountain after being in the presence of God and receiving the law, his face was aglow. Is not this here God saying, I approve of this man just like I approved of Moses? What a rebuke this was. The glow of God on Stephen's countenance was a sign from God that Stephen spoke for God just like Moses did. I wonder if they got it. I'm not sure that that they did, but we get it, right? And this is beautiful. So there's his glowing, glorious countenance. Then we get to see his courage. And it strikes me that this axiom is true, that being much in the presence of God will do that to you. It'll make you bold. (laughs) Being with God much, being filled with his spirit will make you bold for Christ. And we're going to see his courage in answering the charges that were being leveled against him. And in so doing, we're also going to see his command of the scriptures, his wonderful grasp of God's story. So he's standing there, 7 verse 1, it says, The high priest said, Are these things so? These charges that are being brought against you, are they true? So get this scene in your mind. There is this lone man with a shining face standing in front of 70 august, robed, powerful men who held his fate in their hands. They were already exasperated with this Christian movement. Peter and John and the others. Now here's this new fella giving them fits. They've heard the testimony from these paid-off crooked witnesses who've brought four specific charges against Stephen. They said he speaks against God, he speaks against Moses, he speaks against the temple, and he speaks against the law. And now it's Stephen's turn to defend himself. And that's what Acts chapter 7 is. And you've got to know I'm tempted to just kind of summarize his defense because it's, it's a long sermon. Not as long as this sermon, but it's a long sermon. But I'm going to resist that temptation and I'm going to read it to you. 
Don't tune out. Stay with me. It's brilliant. In this defense, Stephen first aligns himself with the worldview of the Sanhedrin. Then he answers all four of those charges. And then he stuns them by turning the tables and indicting them for their complicity in the death of Jesus, the Messiah of God. And he does all of this while unfolding the panoramic history of the nation of Israel. It's beautiful and it's masterful. This is Stephen filled with the Spirit of God, God's words in his mouth, giving an answer for the hope that is within him, giving a logical, reasoned defense for his faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it from the NIV because it flows a little better than the ESV. So it occurs to me that maybe some of you need a refresher on the history of Israel and how it got to Jesus. Well, let's learn from Stephen. Here we go. Verse 2. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our Father. Now notice the pronouns our. He's aligning himself with them. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, the land of Israel, Canaan. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So all Abraham had was a promise from God. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me here in this place. Then he, that's God, gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Now, at this point, the members of the Sanhedrin listening to this had to be thinking, we know this. (laughs) This is our story. Where is he going with this? I think that could be the title of Stephen's sermon. Where is he going with this? (laughs) What does this history lesson have to do with answering the charges? He continues. Verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he, Pharaoh, made him, that's Joseph, ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. Then on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers. 
by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Do you remember hearing that story? At that time, Moses was born. So now Stephen has traced the history up to Moses. And he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house when he was placed outside, actually in the Nile River in a little basket. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. I'm thinking the Sanhedrin's thinking, dude, we know about Moses. He's our hero. And you're being charged with speaking against him. We, we don't need to be lectured on the life and the ministry of Moses. We teach that course every day. But he was undeterred, Stephen was, and he continued. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner. And there he had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. This famous incident, right? The burning bush incident. And when he, Moses, saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place we are where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, which we call what? The Ten Plagues. At the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. And again, at this point, I think the Sanhedrin's like, they're looking at each other and they're, they're like, we get it, Moses. <laughs> we understand our people have been blind at times. Yes, we Jews have had a history of missing God's servants. So what? Stephen continued, this is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from among your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us. That's the law. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. That's interesting. They rejected Moses. And in their hearts, turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. 
This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan. These are false idols of the surrounding nations. The idols you made to worship, therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now Stephen is quoting extensively from the Old Testament here, right? They all knew this story, the Sanhedrin did. They, they knew these scriptures, and I, I've got to believe at this point it was dawning on at least a couple of them where this was going. He continues, Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. All right, let me pause here. Let's summarize what Stephen is trying to get across so far, okay? Here's what he's saying. Gentlemen, I'm a Jew, just like you are. We share the same heritage, fellow descendants of Abraham. Your God is my God. Our story is the story of our God choosing our ancestors to be his special people, promising them a land to dwell in and calling them into a covenant to be faithful to him and worship him alone as their God. We all know that God raised up leaders from among our people through the years, like Joseph and Moses and Joshua, to keep the people faithful and, and get them into the promised land. So understand, gentlemen, I'm not against God. I love and worship the God of glory. That's the title he used, which is right out of the Psalms. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was saying. And he was saying, I'm not against Moses or the law. I'm not against David or Solomon or the temple either. But listen, here's where we part ways, you and I. Because my new master, Jesus, yes, he did talk about the destruction of this beloved temple here, bricks and mortar. That's because he knew something that you evidently don't know. And here's where Stephen starts to insert the dagger. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, he's saying, you're prophet. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? It's as if Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, look, you've let yourself become obsessed with the physical, outward expressions of our religion. And you've missed the reality. You're all fixated on this building that we're standing in, this great temple that we're standing in, but, but somewhere along the line you lost sight of the fact that no building can contain God. And furthermore, God's desire is to dwell actually in the hearts of his people. Not in a man-made structure. And then it started to get hot in there. Because he really brings down the hammer beginning in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now, do you think they took kindly to that? <laughs> stiff-necked. That was a term that God used of his stubborn people in the Old Testament. Uncircumcised. 
I mean, these were people of the covenant who prided themselves in that. And he's saying, you know, you're acting like Gentiles. That did not go over well, I'm telling you. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And I think the Sanhedrin is saying, wait a second, I thought Stephen was on trial here. Now it feels like we're being put on trial. He continued, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels but have not obeyed it. They prided themselves in obeying the law of Moses. And Stephen is saying, not even close. This is a crushing indictment. Stephen basically applies the coup de grace to his accusers. In effect, he's saying, you people are on the wrong side of history. Our history, you're on the wrong side of it. You pride yourselves in being spokesmen for God, but but you've acted just like our hard-hearted ancestors who persecuted God's true spokesmen. You claim to love Moses, but Moses predicted the coming of a prophet, the ultimate servant of God. And that man actually showed up in your lifetime, in your generation. And what did you do? You killed him. You killed him. You claim to love the law of Moses, but you executed the righteous one who came to fulfill that law. What is it going to take to get through to you people? That's how I read it. I'll tell you, that's courage, is it not? This man must have had steel in his spine to speak so strongly to that very distinguished assembly of men, which would have been very intimidating. I think most of us would have been intimidated, but instead of wilting under the heat, Stephen brought the heat, didn't he? (laughs) Instead of trying to save his skin, he put his skin in the game. And he spoke truth to power. And that is dangerous. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious. And that word doesn't capture the intensity of emotion that they felt. And they gnashed their teeth at him. Can you hear that in your mind? What that sounded like? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the one they had killed, standing at the right hand of God. There he is. At this, they turn into middle schoolers. They cover their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. So they've cast all dignity aside, haven't they? They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. A little footnote here. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. who's standing there, approving of all this. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, and that does not mean he took a nap. And again, this note, chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Wow. 
What a man. What a story. What courage. And by the way, do any of Stephen's final statements here remind you of anybody else? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Don't hold this sin against them. Let's talk for a minute about Stephen's Christ-likeness. It was Robert Murray McShane who once said, it's not great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. And it's true. Stephen displayed great likeness to his Lord Jesus Christ. One scholar identified ten ways that Stephen was like Jesus. I think we've noted a few, haven't we? Challenging the religious establishment, being hauled into a tribunal that was rigged against him and being subjected to a bunch of false witnesses, being willing to speak truth to power, subjected to mob violence, forgiving those who were killing him. Are you kidding me? They're they're throwing stones at him, crushing his skull, and he's saying, Father, forgive them. That sounds like Jesus. Offering up his spirit to God as Jesus did. I want to remind all of us today that one Christ-like man can make a big difference. One Christ-like woman can have a huge impact that will outlast their lifetime. Think about Stephen. Consider what happened in the aftermath of this in the wake of his courageous stand and his, the laying down of his life for what he believed in. Let's take a moment to consider, consider his continuing legacy. Chapter 8 opens like this. And there arose on that day. So basically what happened is all Hades broke loose. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, that's the Christians, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's interesting. Except the apostles, who evidently stayed in Jerusalem. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and committed them to prison. He was like a terrorist. But listen to this statement. And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now think about this. I mentioned it earlier. Were it not for this event, the martyrdom of Stephen, all of the believers might have been content to stay there in Jerusalem. I mean, things were going great, right? The church was going great guns. There was upwards of 20,000 people now, so it was a mega church. The apostles were performing signs, healing people. People were getting saved. The fellowship was sweet. The generosity was flowing. God kept showing up in amazing ways in the life of this church, even releasing leaders from prison over and over again. But listen, God had a plan, and it was a larger plan. And when God has a plan... He's unstoppable. When God has a plan and it's time to carry out that plan, He will not be stopped. And God's plan, spoken through His Son Jesus, was for His people to be His witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. That's Acts 1.8, right? God wants a family full of people from every people group on the planet, every tribe, every language, every nation, every tongue. And when Jerusalem there, and the Jews in Jerusalem, when Jerusalem got to the point where it was filled with the teaching of Jesus, as the leaders had claimed, 
then it was time to move out, and God made sure that it did. And his primary instrument in carrying the gospel out beyond Israel to the Gentiles was who? That terrorist named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who was there watching as the stones were crushing the skull of Stephen. And he would forever have that image, don't you think, etched in his mind of that bloodied man looking up into heaven and saying, there's the Son of Man, I'm getting ready to go to him. One day, Saul would not only come to embrace the same Savior that Stephen had embraced, but he would take Stephen's same gospel message out beyond Jerusalem into Asia Minor to the Gentiles. He would plant dozens of churches. He would write half the New Testament. Ultimately, Saul turned Paul would be responsible for billions of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, including, when you think about it, us down to this present day, and it could all be traced back to the influence of Stephen in his life who had become to him an unwitting mentor by his life and his death. What a legacy Stephen would leave behind. Add to that the fact that thousands of Christians down through the centuries who would face persecution like he did would be inspired by hearing or reading the story of Stephen and would be emboldened to stand strong for Christ no matter what came. And, I think you could say this as well, with Stephen's martyrdom serving as a catalyst for the first great missionary movement, you could probably also say that every believer who has ever heard the missionary call down through the centuries could trace their heritage back to this man. And I think about this, if even one person in this room today, one person decides to sell out to Jesus as a result of hearing about the life and ministry and death of Stephen, then his story will still be changing the world today, right? Well, in my time remaining, which is short, I want to draw out four points of application for us. Four. I could draw out 20, but I only have four minutes. So four and four. Here we go. I think these will challenge you like they've challenged me. First, think about this. Stephen was fearless in part because he hung out with people who had no fear. I mean, think about who Stephen's friends were. Peter, James, John, the apostles. In fact, you read his sermon, his defense, and you know who it sounds like? It sounds kind of like Peter. I think Peter had rubbed off on him. And you know it's true It's easier to stand up for God if your friends are standing up for God as well. Isn't that true? Some of you are listening to this message and the main point of application for you is this. You need to change your friends. The people you hang out with are not full of God, not full of the Spirit. They're just full of themselves. And they're not helping you get full of God at all. It's no wonder you aren't strong enough to take a stand for Christ You know, there's that old saying, your friends will determine to a great degree what kind of person you will be, based on Proverbs 13, 20, and it's true. It's true. Some of you need to change your friends or change your friends. Second, Stephen was full of God, note this, because he was full of God's word. I mean... We read his message, right? It's full of scripture. It's full of an understanding of God's sovereign plan as revealed 
in his word. And again, those statements that he uttered as the stones were pounding his flesh, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. The words of Jesus were on his lips because he had hidden them in his heart. Stephen was bold because he was full of God and he was full of God because he'd filled his heart with the word of God. You say, I want to be bold like that. You can see a mental image of yourself, you know, standing up, speaking up for God. But I, I challenge you, you, you'll never be full of God if you're not full of his word. Soak in his word. Marinate your mind in the word of God. And watch the spirit of God take control in your life. The third challenge for us, I believe, is this. Stephen could let go of his life for Christ because he had already let go of his life to Christ. He'd already made the decision to be all in with Jesus and his cause, hadn't he? There was no turning back for him. No doubt Stephen had heard Jesus' words repeated many times by his friends. He who keeps his life shall lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall find it. You know why Stephen could be so bold in the face of such intimidation it was because he knew the worst thing worst thing they could do to him was kill him I mean that's all they could do they could take his life they could kill his body but he knew they couldn't take away from him that which was most precious they couldn't touch his soul they couldn't alter his eternal destiny they couldn't take away his home in heaven purchased for him by the blood of Jesus Christ They couldn't hurt his relationship with God. Those things were out of their reach. All they could do was kill him. You see, when you're truly filled up with God, even the threat of dying can't turn your heart away from Jesus because you know that death simply ushers you into the presence of the one that you've longed for all your life and want to see. He'd already let go of his life. And then finally this. Stephen is just one more illustration of how worthy Jesus is to devote our whole life to. I got to thinking about what if Stephen were sitting in the congregation today listening to this Stephen preach about him. And I got to thinking that I I think he would be disappointed with me if the main thrust of this message ended up being something like, hey everybody, try to be more like Stephen. Stephen. I think he would say, Steve, that wasn't my message of my life. Be like me. My message was Jesus. I pointed people to Jesus. Jesus is the one worth living for. And Jesus is the one worth dying for. Stephen's message wasn't look at me, it was look at him. And that's exactly what he was doing as his life was being pummeled out of him, wasn't he? Looking at Jesus. Looking at Jesus. You see, Jesus was his goal. Jesus was his hope. Jesus was his identity. Jesus was his prize. No earthly success had captured Stephen's heart. Only the vision of being received into the arms of his Lord and hearing those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the vision that had captured his heart. And I say, may that vision capture our hearts as well. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? And I need to ask before I pray, because I think Stephen would want me to, (laughs) 
If there's anybody in the room this morning who would say, after hearing that man's story, I'm feeling challenged to give my whole life to Jesus today. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, because I see more clearly now that Jesus is worthy of my whole life. Is there anybody like that? Would you raise your hand? I'm challenged to give my whole life to Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I see that. And yes, some men and some women. Thank you. Me too. Lord, may the impact of the life of one of your choice servants continue to have that ripple effect into our very lives this day. We thank you for men and women who have inspired us with their devotion to you, Jesus. But ultimately, we want to say to you, you are worth it. You are worth any level of devotion we might offer you today. And I pray that this congregation would be full of men like this and women who had these qualities, Lord. That we might go out into a world and live the life of Jesus that is within us. And be bold and unafraid to stand up for Jesus Christ, whom we love, who gave his life for us. For you alone are worthy of our lives, and if it should ever come to it, our, our death even. We look forward to seeing you one day, Lord, but until that time, may we stand firm, deep love and devotion for you. Because you are worth it, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.